Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Frank Mazingo, a Johnson MBA student and president of the Johnson Association of Veterans. I am pleased to introduce this episode with Sarah Kreps, a professor of government and adjunct professor of law at Cornell University. The conversation draws upon Professor Kreps's former active duty service in the U.S. Air Force and her subsequent academic career exploring military affairs through the lens of history, policy, and technology. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. I'm your host, Jack Moriarty, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Professor Sarah Kreps. Sarah Kreps is a professor of government and adjunct professor of law at Cornell University. She is also a faculty fellow in the Milstein Program in Technology and Humanity at the Cornell Tech Campus in New York City. Dr. Kreps is the author of four books, including most recently, Taxing Wars, The American Way of War Finance and the Decline of Democracy, which deals with the causes and consequences of how advanced industrialized democracies such as the US, UK, and France pay for its wars. She has also written two books on drones, including Drones, What Everyone Needs to Know, and Drone Warfare. Her first book, Coalitions of Convenience, United States Military Interventions After the Cold War, analyzed military interventions carried out over the last decade. She is currently writing a fifth book focused on the role of social media in international relations. Dr. Kreps has held fellowships at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she is a lifetime member, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and the University of Virginia's Miller Center for Public Affairs. In 2017 to 2018, she was an adjunct scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point. She holds a BA from Harvard College, Master of Science from Oxford, and a PhD in government from Georgetown. Between 1999 and 2003, she served on active duty in the United States Air Force. Professor Kreps, thank you so much for joining us. Very happy to be here. Your first job out of college was a bit more unique than most. Can you share a little bit with us about your experience serving in the Air Force and how it's informed your scholarship when it comes to military and defense issues? For sure. I think my military background was very much the foundation on which I've built as an academic. So I was ROTC in college in the 1990s. So I was a student at Harvard and I did my training at MIT. And then after you do ROTC, since there's no free lunch, they pay for college, you are required to give back, which was actually something that was very foundational in terms of kind of how I see the world. So between 1999 and 2003, I was on active duty. And there were a couple of parts of that experience that I think really have informed the way I've approached my work, but also substantively what I've focused on. So I, after 9-11, was working on drones, equipping the Predator with Hellfire missiles. That wasn't directly in my office, but that was part of our portfolio And then the other part was related to finance and contracting. It's called project management, which I think business school students are probably very familiar with. And I worked on an aircraft called the E3AWACS. And so I had a program that had a budget of a billion dollars. And so that was a pretty big deal, I thought. And so I thought a lot about money and how we pay for programs and how we pay for the Pentagon's budget in general. And so both of those two aspects, the part on drones and the part on money, I think you can see very much threaded through the work I still do today. A major theme of your work has been the theory of democratic accountability and the use of force. Can you describe the basics of that theory and how you've built upon it? 
Right. So one of the first main theories I came across as a PhD student seemed to conflict a little bit with what I had seen as a practitioner. And so reading democratic theory, uh, scholars like Immanuel Kant, what they profess to be different about a democracy is that the costs of war are passed along to the public in blood and treasure. And because democratic consent is required to go to war, the fact that the public will be bearing those costs makes them more attentive to it. It basically gives them skin in the game. And when the costs of those wars exceed what the public feels are the real benefits, the idea is that they will put pressure on leaders to bring those wars to a close. And so in practice, it seemed the shift to the all-volunteer military force and the shift to debt versus taxes really undermined those accountability linkages. Your work outlines how different armed conflicts involving the United States have featured varying political constraints over time. Some of those constraints are results of the nature of the conflict itself. Which attributes of a conflict determine what the constraints are for those in power? Well, so I think maybe I'll take a step back to answer that question, which was the first way in which I had come across this in the contemporary context was actually through conversations with a colleague of mine who was studying what he calls security taxes in Latin America. And so he looked at them in Costa Rica and Colombia as a way to pay for the civil conflicts there. And so then kind of coming back to the U.S., which I was most familiar with, I thought, well, that's interesting. We don't do that. We haven't had a, a war tax to pay for wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Why is that? And has that always been the case? And so he and I collaborated. This is a Professor Flores Macias in my department, in the Department of Government. We started doing kind of a chronology and history of this experience with war taxes. And what we found is that this wasn't always the case. In fact, throughout most of American history, it was war taxes that paid for wars. And it's only a recent shift that the U.S. has moved away from that. And so the book was really focused on, well, why is that? Why did the U.S. move away from those war taxes and really grounded in this implication that without these war taxes, that democratic accountability really unravels? Can you share some examples from history that illustrate the application of that theory, how different conflicts have changed in the U.S. when it comes to our financing methods? So one of the ideas of Taxes and the reason why this is thought to be so foundational to democratic accountability is that generally people are thought not to like taxes. And so the idea again is that if they are now forced to pay a tax, they'll impose more scrutiny on the wars. And yet again, this is until recently how the US had financed its wars. In 1798, as it looked like the US was going to war with France, Hamilton, who was then Treasury Secretary, but very much sort of the center of decisions about how to do most things with the government, including how to pay for something like raising a military, levied war taxes for the prospect of a war with France. Didn't see that in Hamilton. You can see it. I cite this in, in one of the chapters of my book is lines from Hamilton, the play, because he talks about how to pay for this ragtag military. And so he was very attentive to this. How are we going to pay these soldiers? Because what you may recall from the 1790s, neither of which of us were around at that time, but we've all done due diligence on our history, is that there was during the Revolutionary War a near mutiny because these soldiers weren't being paid. And so he was very attentive to this. He was also attentive to the fact that in the mid-1790s, to pay for retrospectively the Revolutionary War costs, you may have come across the Whiskey Rebellion. And so the Whiskey Rebellion was a response to a whiskey tax that was imposed to pay, again, retrospectively for the Revolutionary War. 
obviously unpopular. So there's this rebellion and it really kind of draws out this mechanism of, you know, if you have this tax, this draws these accountability linkages. Nonetheless, in 1798, on the eve of war, it seemed, there was a war tax levied. And every war, really between then and Vietnam, the U.S. would institute a war tax to pay for its wars. And so, again, what I, what I think this does is elicit scrutiny from the public that's paying these taxes and thinking about how this connects to the wars that are being fought. You've mentioned the Vietnam War and the Korean War as inflection points in how we decide to finance wars. What changed after these conflicts? So I point to two main factors that I think have a lot to do with this change, with this shift. The first one is the way in which wars are fought from the mid-20th century till today. So a lot of things correlate, and we know as good social scientists that correlation is not causation. But I think one of the big things that changes in 1945 or wars after that is that we're now in a nuclear era. And so what that does is it deters countries from engaging in large scale wars, total wars as existential wars, because the costs are just so high. And what that means, though, is that these wars between countries have then increasingly gone to low intensity wars at the periphery. And so what that does is lower the perception of stakes in ways that have made leaders less inclined to elicit fiscal sacrifice from the populace. But what does that as much is the fact that what also coincides with this mid-20th century period is that you have the rise of the social welfare state. You know, one thing I point to in the book is what you can see in terms of tax-to-GDP ratio. So every time you have a war earlier in the United States, the tax-to-GDP ratios go up, which means essentially the U.S. government is generating revenue. That, until World War II, went down after the war. After World War II, it stays high. What some scholars refer to there is the ratchet effect. So it never comes down. But what that means is that your peacetime tax levels are quite high, comparatively speaking. And you end up with this situation, so kind of this grand bargain that I think we see evidence of today, which is that the Democrats are generally favoring social programs and Republicans are favoring big defense. And they each get what they want. So the Democrats are getting the social programs. The Republicans, who actually don't dislike the social programs because they realize from constituents that they're pretty popular. And the Democrats realize that people generally think that they want a strong defense. And so they end up in this grand bargain where you have relatively high peacetime tax levels and everyone is getting the respective program that they want. But it means that there's no wartime taxation you can do the math on that. What it means is that deficits are getting higher and higher. So one thing that you see with these two wars, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, is this kind of growing realization that the type of war we're fighting is different. The baseline tax levels on which those wars are being fought, if you will, has changed. So now we have higher peacetime tax rates, a ceiling on a bipartisan antipathy, really, toward raising taxes further. And because these wars just don't seem like they're very meaningful or the stakes don't seem very high, that the public doesn't seem forthcoming with fiscal sacrifice. And these political elites who are sensitive to thinking about what the public wants doesn't want to ask the public for sacrifice either. And so you have then really the last war tax in 1968. And this is Johnson, who has for several years been urged by his economic advisors to introduce a war tax. Inflation is rising. The war 
doesn't have enough revenues. So his economic advisors are urging that he does this. And he keeps saying, and again, this is really important because it highlights this mechanism, this accountability mechanism. Johnson says, if I do a war tax, I won't be able to get the war through. I won't be able to get my social programs through because we're going to have to have democratic debate. And that's not what I want. And so he avoids these taxes for as long as he can until 1968. And then you get, I think, again, kind of this confluence of a number of things where it's hard to point only to the war taxes as the reason why he doesn't run for re-election or why now there are protests in the streets. But I think clearly these war taxes become a lightning rod for opposition, just a really clear signal that this war is going on and it's not going well. Moving to the present day, the United States remains engaged in both Iraq and Afghanistan. How do these modern conflicts fit into that strain of history that you've just described? So I think they feature quite prominently. So if you look, for example, and I show this in figures that I present when I talk about the book. So the longest wars in American history are the Afghanistan War followed by the Iraq War. And again, correlation not being causation, but these are also two of the major wars that have not had this fiscal sacrifice elicited from the populace. And so there's a lot of debate about these perpetual or endless wars. And so people have different theories as to why that has happened. And I think that it's fair to say that the fact that we're not fighting with a with conscription and these are fought by drones and so the sort of human costs are low is a, is a part of that story. But I think another part of it is that there is no fiscal sacrifice. People aren't paying the cost. And so, again, the question is why that is. And I think when you look at these two wars, and I do that in my book, you can see kind of it's a chicken and egg problem. What features of those wars make it hard for political elites to go to the public and say, hey, we're going to do a five cent gas tax to pay for these wars? They won't do that unless the stakes are existential. But the problem is to get the public sort of invested in it. They need to get a sense of the clear stakes. And so when you look at, for example, just the Afghanistan surge and the Iraq surge, and I, I just want to say parenthetically, clearly the Afghanistan war started in very different ways. Some people use war of choice, war of necessity. I think the Afghanistan war fairly unequivocally started as a war of necessity compared to the Iraq war, more of a war of choice. But I think it's fair to say more than a decade later, that they're sort of in the same situation of, well, the U.S. could leave, the U.S. could stay, what determines which direction we go? And so periodically, there have been these questions about whether to institute a war tax. In fact, one of the recent Democratic candidates proposed a war tax. And much like every other proposal of the last five or 10 years, when this has come up, it is quickly brushed under the rug as a policy that is a non-starter. And I think, again, it's this sort of catch-22 of, well, how do you generate that sense? And can these wars actually contribute to that sense that they're worth fighting, that the public should have a skin in the game? And so when you look at these wars and you look at kind of the strategic benchmarks that leaders use or have used when they were debating the surge in 2007 for Iraq and 2009 in Afghanistan. And so there's a quote I use in the book from Condoleezza Rice in 2007. She said, look, you know, Americans don't understand the difference between Shias and Sunnis. They don't understand why they're fighting. They're all Muslims. Like, I need to be able to go back to my public and explain this war. They can't wrap their heads around that. The Afghanistan war in the context of the surge is interesting because one of the strategic measures used of success 
is how many steps it takes to get a driver's license in Afghanistan. And so that doesn't immediately seem like a strategic objective that is very closely linked to American national security. What it's a proxy for is corruption in Afghanistan. And corruption is a proxy for governance, which is a proxy for the stability of the government and the likelihood that the Taliban, for example, can take over and gain ground. But again, that's just not a metric that most Americans not only can really wrap their heads around, but are going to hear and say, yeah, I'm ready to pay for this. And so leaders, I think, understand that. And so they're not asking for that fiscal sacrifice. And so what I think you end up is this kind of perpetual war dynamic in which there's no real constraint. And I might just add that I think democratic incentives, sort of electoral incentives, push toward continuing those wars as well, which is to say no one wants to be the one that has some kind of attack on their watch. And so the, I think there's a default status quo bias of staying in a war, and that's not constrained now by any kind of public reproach. You've touched on certain strategic objectives in the context of Afghanistan that are more non-military. In your view, how well is the military set up to succeed on these non-traditional objectives? So I think this raises really interesting and fundamental questions about the role of the military and what these conflicts abroad consist of and that intersection between the military and low intensity, basically state building. And just kind of by the name of state building, you might think, well, maybe the Department of State should be doing this. Why aren't they? And I think the problem is that, I mean, here's another example. Why does the U.S. military do Ebola relief in Afghanistan? And I think it has become kind of this accretion of power in the military. And maybe this is just basic Washington bureaucratic politics, which is the larger the budget, the more powerful the bureaucracy. And the Pentagon, by virtue of a $700 billion a year budget, is really powerful. I think the other problem is that there is this sort of, and this is something I point to in the book, is kind of a cost sensitivity of the American public. And by cost, I mean both financial and human costs is that the American public is averse to spending more and having body bags come back from any kind of theater, whether it's Ebola relief in Africa or nation building in Afghanistan. And so the DOD, the Pentagon, has, I think, really taken over this role of state building and relief because it is more capacious. It has kind of a defensive capability, offensive as well, of course. And so it's more kind of inoculated from some of the threats that it might face. But it also does sort of dip into these kinds of measures that sound a lot like nation building. And that ties as well to this public perception of what's going on. So the public, the American public, and this is very different in Europe, but the American public has always expressed skepticism about nation building abroad. And I think this is, frankly, part of the base of support for Trump's America First policy, which is we, we have problems at home. Let's focus on those. Why are we spending billions of dollars abroad? And so what you, you see that very much in public opinion polls when Gallup, for example, asks the American public how much of the U.S. government budget is spent on foreign aid. And people will say 25 percent. And this is just shockingly high given what it actually is, which is something like 0.5 percent. And so there is just historically or perennially this skepticism about spending money abroad. And so I think, again, you get that nexus of inherent skepticism. And now, you know, the Pentagon is doing these basically foreign aid 
building schools for Afghan girls and not understanding why we're building schools for Afghan girls if we don't have schools in U.S. inner cities that can meet the enrollment needs that we have. So I think that that is very much part of this. But so it's a complicated story. But I think what it boils down to is the sense that the, the these political elites are aware of that cost sensitivity and they don't want to ask for something that's going to cost them any political capital. So they just kind of continue with the status quo of not asking for fiscal sacrifice and therefore not having any real scrutiny or circumspection on the way they're conducting these wars abroad. Another strain of your work has examined the emergence of drone warfare. How has drone technology impacted democratic accountability? So I think in some ways the shift to drones has been a much more visible and acute version of this overall mechanism of democratic accountability that I've been talking about. So it's the cost in blood and treasure. And so this is the blood side. And in the 1970s, we moved away from the all-volunteer force. This was something that had bipartisan support to move away from conscription. But I think there's a consequence. There was a consequence of that, which is, again, if you think that there's no chance that your number will be up, there's much less cost to supporting a conflict. So then you take that dynamic of moving away from conscription and shifting away from casualties not all together, but in a much more marked way. And that happens in at least two ways. One is, and I have a colleague, Tanisha Fazal at Minnesota, who's working on this, changes in battlefield medicine. And so she's done a lot of research on how improvements in battlefield medicine have essentially reduced the connection between casualty and fatality. And so we, when we hear casualty, we usually associate it with fatality. But actually... Casualty just implies either wounded or killed. And so in World War I, for every four people wounded, one person died. And today, for every 10 people that are wounded, only one person dies. So in other words, it's a dramatic reduction. So there's only a 10%, let's say, mortality rate compared to 25% if you were wounded in World War II. I want to foreshadow and, and just not bury the lead that that's a good thing. I'm not urging that more people be killed on the battlefield. The second part of this, though, is that with drones, there's no pilot on the airplane at all. So if you're doing targeting missions, there is no risk to an American pilot. So again, both of these developments are positive because we want fewer of our compatriots being killed in action. The only, I think, risk of that is that really by not bearing any risk, the U.S. has very few incentives to bring wars to an end. And so I show that with the shift to drones is that you have the Obama administration dramatically increases the rate of drone strikes between 2009 and 2016. And so it's more than 500 strikes during this time period, thousands of fatalities abroad. And zero, virtually zero, of course, because of how this is done. And so what this does is it, if you think about kind of incentives in government, the incentives of the populace, the legislators, and the executive, all of them have incentives to not see American service people killed. The only flip side of that, though, is that, so these legislators, for example, every time one of their constituents is killed in action, they're getting hate mail. They're getting calls. And there's some people, and we see them 
sometimes here in downtown Ithaca protesting against the drone wars. But as a percentage, they're less mobilized and less numerous than during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars at their peak level of fatalities when people were dying. And so legislators are happy to have the use of drones just substitute for manned targeting missions, the public because they don't want to see their compatriots killed, and the executive because he's not on the front page for having service people killed in war. And so what was interesting about this, in a way, is that when President Trump came into office in 2017, and he sort of, you know, his politics on the use of force are still not entirely clear. Trump campaigned on the view that the Iraq war was the single worst decision ever made. But at the same time, he campaigned on, so it sort of hinted that maybe he was favoring some degree of retrenchment, but he also campaigned on larger military budgets and sort of more a more muscular force abroad. So what was interesting, though, in the early months of his administration is there was a major special forces raid in Africa that killed four service people in Niger, which then suddenly makes his administration, this so-called muscularity, calls it into question. The very next week, the U.S. is negotiating to position drones in Niger so that it can now do this by drone strike. And I think what that suggests, again, is this substitutability and these democratic incentives to avoid the types of costs that the public has shown that it's unwilling to bear. Cyber warfare has increasingly found itself front and center in modern conflicts. You're teaching an upcoming course here at Cornell on the politics of technology. How does cyber warfare differ in its political and strategic implications from more traditional forms of conflict? Cyber is, I think we're all still trying to figure this out. And so that's what some of my research and teaching are really oriented to trying to do. And so one of the things that kind of surprised me a little bit about these formal or official government documents is that including the Nuclear Posture Review and major cybersecurity and strategy documents, is that they write about cyber attacks as being just like any other attack and that they will be treated like just any other attack, which is to say, and this has been written into some of these documents and the political discourse surrounding them has hinted at, although this didn't go into the formal document or the official document, that certain cyber attacks would possibly trigger a nuclear retaliation. And so this starts to sound really exaggerated, possibly. And so this question of like, is if you have what kind of cyber attack would elicit a nuclear retaliation? And so policymakers have talked about these cyber 9-11s and the cyber Pearl Harbors. And I think that's the scenario they're talking about. But even still, one of the questions I had was, if you have this kind of attack, a cyber 9-11, do you necessarily get the level, what what does the public think about that? And you say, well, you might say, what role does the public have in weighing in on whether the U.S. uses force or not? And the reason why it kind of matters, and and I hear I draw on some of the work of nuclear deterrence during the Cold War. And so in order for deterrence to work, here I'll use the U.S. and USSR, the Soviet Union needed to know that if they attacked, the U.S. would retaliate with massive force. But that credibility of massive force hinges on a public that is willing to back the use of force. And so one of the questions during the Cold War was, and this is on extended deterrence, and whether the U.S., for example, would go to war with China over Taiwan or would go would trade, as, as the expression was, 
Paris for New York. So does the public actually, where the rubber meets the road, feel like it would get behind a war and escalate for a cyber conflict in this context? And so what we looked at in this research was sort of controlling for the size of the impact of an attack. Does the public view cyber as just like any other attack? So we looked at the equivalent attack for a conventional weapon and an equivalent attack size-wise and casualty-wise for a nuclear attack. What was fascinating to me is that the public just sees cyber as qualitatively different. So the willingness to use any kind of military force in response to a cyber attack is almost nothing. So again, controlling for the size of the attack and the number of casualties, the public, when it comes to a cyber attack, will say, well, cyber is just different. Like, it doesn't seem appropriate to use military force for a cyber attack. And the scenario that we sort of paint is one where there's an attack on the electric grid that causes the electricity to go out in nursing homes and hundreds of people die. So you have a connection between the cyber attack and these fatalities. But the public is just unwilling to escalate. They say the cost would just be too high and it would be inappropriate. And so what that suggests, though, is that this idea of deterrence just doesn't operate in a cyber realm because you have an incredible, not credible promise of retaliation. And it's not credible because the public just isn't behind this, this idea that you would use military force in response to a cyber attack. Building on the importance of cybersecurity, your forthcoming book focuses on social media and the rise of fake news in an international context. As we know, these were important issues in the wake of the 2016 election, and these developments have put social media platforms under increased scrutiny due to the outsized role these companies play in democratic society. How have you approached these issues? Well, coming back to your earlier question about the class that I'm teaching, I think one of the exchanges or one of the observations that really kind of prompted this decision to teach a class was a 2018 testimony by Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO at Facebook, on Capitol Hill. And it was fascinating to me the degree to which the people in government didn't understand the technology and the people in technology didn't understand government. And I think that continues. I think those bridges are being built between these two worlds. But I think for a long time, these were distinct entities that didn't understand each other at all. And so actually this program at Cornell, the Milstein program, was founded to try to bridge these communities and try to get tech people to think about politics and ethics and get more government humanities people to think more about the tech or the ways in which their work might engage technology. And so in thinking about this question, I thought, well, so what are these questions? What are the ways in which these two communities should be sort of cross-pollinating? And so I think one of the virtues of democracies has been it's the openness of its societies. And what that does is I think it allows for free expression and the sense that voices are being heard. But I think what that now opens society to is manipulation by actors who are looking to sow division and exacerbate division. We know those divisions are there. And so one of the interesting things about this group in Russia, the Internet Research Agency, is they're not creating new divisions. Political polarization in the United States is a thing. What they're doing is then trying to, and that's not just the U.S., that's in France, that's in other developed countries that have these kinds of 
whatever backlash to globalization and populism, you have real division. And so what the these Russian, it's not just Russians, but let's just use them as an example, will do is find stories that speak to and exercise and exacerbate those divisions. So what they might do is engage in debates about immigration or engage in debates about Black Lives Matter or racial politics. And so they find an article that's, let's say, politically contentious, and they insinuate it and then amplify it in social media. And so a democracy is susceptible to this because you have a situation that is both the open society and open media, which is by definition what a democracy is, but you also have the public whose voice is expected to weigh in on policy choices. So the idea is that you have very complicated policy choices. The public is looking to the media for information. And now you have this sort of toxic, contaminated media space that these foreign actors can insinuate themselves into. And I want to just say that I think the reason why this is different in a a non-democracy is that non-democracies, so there's, I think, a wave in political science that points to what's called hybrid regimes. So it used to be that there were, you know, non-democracies and democracies, but now it looks like there are a lot of these hybrid regimes. And a hybrid regime, and one of the most prevalent kinds, is called a competitive authoritarian country. And so it's a country that will hold elections and they seem like they're generally free from massive fraud. But one of the main ways that they remain autocratic is there's a tight control of the media. And that affects, that puts a limit on what competitors to incumbents will have access to. It It privileges certain messages. So in Russia, for example, you have RT or Sputnik News, and these are very pro-government sources. You do not have alternatives. And so you basically have sort of a government-run media. It's the opposite. So they're less susceptible to that than in a democracy where we have a range of political views that are observed in the media space. So again, historically, that free media was thought to be an advantage because we could have debate, we could suss out the good choices and the bad choices, toss the bad ones, keep the good ones. But now what we have is this environment in which the public is trying to go to this media environment for information, and now it has no idea how to make sense, and it's being exposed to messages that might not be accurate. And so I think we see this in in a number of different ways. We have deep fakes. We have videos of Nancy Pelosi that may or may not be real. And now we see this in news as well, is this this question of the veracity of a media source. And even if it's relatively truthful, if you, if the Russian groups can now ricochet these stories and amplify them so they go viral, Now the reach to a larger audience is something that is unrivaled by traditional forums of media, like the New York Times, which is really unidirectional. So you get one, this is very traditional, but one person, one newspaper. Now you can just kind of have these viral videos. And what we know is that if it bleeds, it leads. And so the ways in which inaccurate news travels are unfortunately much faster and much broader than accurate stories. In light of some of the new vulnerabilities when it comes to protecting a free press and other tenets of a democratic society, how can policy and technology work together in order to mitigate some of these newer risks? Well, I think we're still figuring that out. So also in 2018, during these testimonies on Capitol Hill with the tech, some of the tech firms, Senator Mark Warner from 
Virginia Democrat said quite assertively, he says, well, it's not going to be the Wild West and social media anymore. We just don't really know. It's an open question what world we will be living in, but it won't be that. And what I think it highlighted was just like no one, including I think these tech companies, feels great about the status quo, but it's really not clear how to address the problem without actually eroding the fundamental basis of the internet, which is that it has to be open. It has to be sort of small d democratic in the sense that everyone can contribute. Because once you start trying to mediate what's fake news and what's not, I think it you get into really sort of murky waters in terms of now censoring the same kind of and adjudicating free speech versus hate speech, which I think is a really not the business that these tech firms want to be in. So I think what's happening in France, for example, is that the president of France met with Mark Zuckerberg. And there, I think that was recently, that was more recently in 2019. And I think that that was actually a step in the right direction to realize that the tech firms aren't going to solve this on their own. The government isn't going to solve this on their own. That you need these partnerships and kind of this cross flow to be able to generate what I think are these more suitable solutions. So you're not compromising free speech, but you're addressing the problems of, let's say, foreign interference in your media space. As you've shown us, we have a lot of complicated policy choices heading into the 2020 election, both related to free speech and the rise of fake news, as well as a lack of, quote, skin in the game when it comes to the human and financial costs of war. To improve democratic accountability, some experts and even some politicians, as you've noted, have put forward a range of policy prescriptions, such as introducing a war tax, new expectations around national service, pressing Congress to resume formal declarations of war, and even the idea of reinstating the draft. Given your experience, what options do you find most persuasive to more broadly share the life-altering costs of modern warfare? So all of these, I think policy is, as you said, all about complicated choices and trade-offs, inherent tensions and trade-offs between and among these choices. And I think one of the first steps, really, is to for Congress, actually, to engage in more oversight. And so one, one of the dynamics and patterns I've seen in, in recent years is really a tendency of Congress to be stepping aside and relinquishing its oversight responsibilities. And so it was interesting to see this in the last administration. So President Obama, who had taught constitutional law, had said he was very uncomfortable with the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. And so, as you know, this was authorized in the days after it was a joint resolution on September 18th, authorizing the president to use force to pursue the terrorists who had been responsible for 9-11 and to prevent another attack by al-Qaeda and its associated forces. So now, actually, this week, it's 18 years since the 9-11 attacks. And so that resolution is now almost 18 years old. And President Obama said he did not think that that authorized the use of force that he was using during his administration in many instances and that it needed to be updated. So every year there was a discussion in Congress about updating it. And every year that discussion would come and go and we're left with the same authorization. And so I think the problem is, again, in kind of a democratic society with incentives for re-election, is that these members say, well, it's, it's a pretty terrible resolution. It's long in the teeth, as Obama said. 
but it's better than having to come up with a new authorization for the use of military force. And so, and the reason is that if something happens, if you try to constrain the president, or if it looks like you're being, con- if you're constraining the president and there's an, an, an attack on U.S. soil, then you're blamed for having constrained or tied the hands of the president. And so you might as well stick, this is sort of in the minds of the legislators and why nothing ever happens, stick with a resolution that you have and sort of try to fly below the radar in terms of, of the public. And I think probably a large percent of the public does not know essentially all of these drone attacks, drone strikes, for example, are pursuant to the executive says are consistent with this 2001 authorization. And so what you end up is, again, sort of perpetuating the status quo. But I think one step coming back to your question is for Congress to be more engaged in these questions and take more of an oversight role than it's been willing to take in recent years. And I think part of this, again, sort of this is this negative feedback loop. I think a lot of this has happened because of political polarization that also lends itself to outside influence by groups that are trying to further divide society. But I think Congress feels that, too. It has become harder for Congress to pass resolutions and to take a bipartisan position, especially in some ways on foreign policy. And so but I think that nonetheless, that would be the right next step is to try to take more of a position, engage more in more oversight hearings, ask the hard questions about what is the U.S. still doing in Afghanistan? and then maybe get to a point, well, if what we have, the status quo is not working well, what other steps can we take to change that? Professor Krebs, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your service. Thank you, Jack. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Jack Moriarty. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.